This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. This presentation is delivered by the Stanford Center for Professional Development, providing graduate level education to working professionals online, on campus, and on site. For more information, please visit study.stanford.edu. Giving a long introduction. Can you put the camera on the abstract speaker? Because I'd rather hear him speak. So. <laughs> uh, for a number of reasons. Can I have the overhead camera? <laughs> anyway, he has a uh, background from the UK and is now local working on things with LMK and this company. And um, most people, oh, let me put it this way. Did I, anybody did not read his app, the abstract on the website? Oh, cool. Since I'd rather do that while you can read it and you have a speaker, so I'm sorry for that introduction, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Um, okay, well, that's going to serve as the entire introduction, I think. Um, so uh, what I wanted to do today was, uh, rather than present any uh, small, coherent uh, story about a, a small, easily understood artifact, I thought I would uh, make a survey um, of various influences um, that are pertinent on the thinking of myself uh, and my colleagues today as we embark um, on a, a rather ambitious uh, project to reinvent the way we uh, interact with computers and program uh, computers. So in the talk and slides today, uh, I will be showing some uh, algorithms, some work uh, going all the way back maybe 50 years ago, um, which is intended really for your offline contemplation afterwards. Uh, I know the slides are available from the E380 uh, website, so please feel free to download those um, <coughs> and criticize me uh, in batch mode afterwards. Um, and I hope this will be motivation for any of you that are practically inclined to go away and experiment with some of the ideas that I'm talking about today if you have not already done so in the past, uh, and there are, will be pointers to useful information. Um, and go away and make things, and make things to know, not just to have, because when you do something, you really, you don't just understand it, you believe it, and there's a very big difference between understanding and believing. Um, and along the way, I will show some pertinent artifacts from the last 50 years of uh, ancient computing history. Uh, so even though this is EE380, uh, if you go away uh, feeling that you've been in computer archaeology 101, uh, I will completely understand. So uh, about the uh, group that I belong to, vpri.org is our website. You can find a lot more than I have time to explain on that website. Um, in short, one of our goals for the next five years is to build a complete practical personal computer system. Everything from the user interface um, and the way the users interact with computers all the way down 
to the thing that tells the metal how to run everything in 20,000 lines of code. That's a ballpark figure, but it would be nice to, to get it below 20,000 lines of code. And this is one stepping stone on the way to a, a reinvention of the way we look at computers, which these days really are just dinosaurs, gigantic things that should be a lot smaller and a lot more beautiful than they actually are. Um, and so I'll talk a little today about the, the, the language and system approach to what we're doing. Um, and this can be summed up by saying that the system should be the curriculum. Um, and its emphasis is not so much on functionality, but on the ideas and the ideals um, of what the system should be, uh, intended to be comprehensive so that anybody with a little background um, can go away, look at the system, and understand the system simply by inspecting it. Um, and it should be its own model, so that 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 it implements, the model that it implements, is also the model of implementation uh, that implements it. Uh, so if you like, it's a system to learn about systems or an exploratorium. And if you haven't been to the exploratorium in San Francisco, you really must. It's a fabulous place. So our approach, uh, in contrast with current computing systems, which can be seen as really uh, functional uh, devices that are intended to get a job done, and nobody really cares too much about how beautifully the job gets done. Uh, there is a list of adjectives there that I think describe uh, our feeling about current computing systems. Um, and certainly current systems are not good models of what a computing system ought to be. Because a model is most useful and most powerful if it can capture the entire phenomena that it is trying to describe, and yet be small enough so that with just a small amount of effort, um, you don't really need to have a PhD in order to understand the model. So powerful enough to completely describe its domain, yet small enough to be comprehensible to uh, an average person. Um, and the question really that, that we need to address is, can we even begin to build a system that will support our research towards inventing new ways of interacting with computers? Can we even begin to build the system using the conventional programming languages of today? Now, uh, I know there's a, a mixed audience here. Uh, so uh, I was expecting some electrical engineering people, some computing people. So I thought I'd just put up a slide that uh, describes briefly uh, what a computer uh, programming system should do for you. Uh, in green, this may be a little hard to see, on the left we have the source code, which generates by some convoluted process an application that you run. And most systems are designed so you have the illusion of being able to control what happens here by modifying what you feed into it over here. But the reality is, in most systems, we have these two black boxes that are hermetically sealed. We have a language that describes how what you write over here gives you the illusion of controlling what pops out over there, and then an environment which tells you what you can and cannot do when your illusion of control starts to run over here. And if we look at, uh, at uh, the language side, we have three things that are important. Uh, syntax, which is uh, the words that you use uh, and the combinations of punctuation symbols, etc., that you use to describe your intent. Um, the Semantics, which is what that actually means in terms of a, a sequence of actions that a machine might perform in response to those sentences that you give it. And then what I could call maybe pragmatics, which is how does that then relate to what's happening in the rest of the world? Because if you have a fabulous application that cannot make the toaster turn on and off, then the application and the toaster are both useless. So pragmatics is how do we interact with some external stuff. And all of these are administered by a friendly program, the compiler that probably has uh, some runtime assist, which gets linked in or otherwise made available to your program. And then this all sits on top of 
uh, an operating system, some hardware, and then some libraries that are sub supplied for your um, for your reuse. If you're very lucky, you will have a language uh, such as Smalltalk that gives you some user-defined primitive uh, ability so that if there is something missing in your runtime or there is something um, at the limit missing in the semantics of your language, maybe you can understand enough about the implementation to go away and make it for yourself. But that's not really what I will be talking about today. I'm going to be concentrating today on these three things top left. And what I hope to show is that uh, a very simple model of those three things up top left can take away all of the tyranny that is in red and sealed in those uh, black boxes in this slide. <laughs> so I'm going to give you, uh, normally I, I like to make this talk 50% uh, demonstrations. But uh, because of the media involved today, I thought I'd cut it down to just one demonstration. So I hope you can see what's uh, um, popping up on my terminal here. Uh, if not, I should say in the slides that are available online, uh, the last two pages in those slides contain a TypeScript of what I'm about to attempt. Uh, so what I have is a, a, a little language that's uh, parse trees. It may look a bit lispy to some people, but actually it's looking at parse trees that have essentially the semantics of the C programming language. So if I ask for the character that offset zero in a string, uh, ABC, I get the ASCII value of A, B, C, etc. And anyone who knows C would expect it to be a zero at the end. That's all very well. Uh, and it's a, a, a lispy, a schemey, if you like, type syntax. Um, but I may not be inclined to write char at inside lots of infernal silly parentheses uh, very often. I might want to invent my own little bit of syntax. And in many systems, it's very hard to invent your own piece of syntax. And the kind of uh, malleability and flexibility that we are talking uh, about creating at every level within the computing experience, uh, I hope to be able to demonstrate uh, right now. Uh, I've loaded some libraries into the system. Um, and one thing these libraries allow me to do is, uh, for example, um, add some rules to the front end of the system that is interpreting what I type to it. <coughs> and so what I've done here, uh, the code name for this uh, little lispy type language is Coke for reasons that I will not explain because I'm on record. Um, uh, and in brief, what I have done is the following. I said, with a certain set of rules for recognizing uh, tokens on the input, characters on the input, breaking the stream of text into individual units that have some semantic meaning, um, using a certain tokenizer, uh, take uh, an existing rule in my grammar, uh, which is called Coke, and then extend it by saying afterwards, I can have either uh, a square bracket enclosing um, uh, an expression, and I will store that in a variable for later use, um, or nothing, in which case it's just the original expression that I put in. So hopefully what I've done now is taught my system to recognize that if I put something inside square brackets after an expression, I would like it to pretend that I had typed the following. Okay, so a little bit like a macro system, um, but um, uh, I don't have time to prove it today, but it goes much deeper than a traditional macro system. So in theory, I have taught my system now how to understand my square brackets. Um, it's not completely transparent in that I have to, in this version of it, tell it to re-enter the, uh, the interactive loop. Um, but now I should, if I haven't uh, screwed up, uh, be able to say ABC of zero, and here come my characters. I have taught my system uh, a little bit of new syntax. Uh, and just to show you that um, 
and being honest about this, if I were to type the same thing uh, into the uh, original unloaded system, uh, I would get this uh, bizarre error message, which actually really means you're not allowed to put a square bracket after an expression with a single thing inside it. <coughs> okay, so that's, that's one of many examples I would normally give, but unfortunately the media today uh, preclude the rest of the examples. Uh, if you follow the uh, abstract, there are some uh, URLs uh, on the, uh, the Colloquium webpage uh, where you can download this software and play with it for yourself. So, if we want to apply this kind of flexibility at every level inside the computing experience, um, what kind of ways do we have to think about computing? The traditional ways don't really work, and we have to make um, we have to make some we have to have recourse to something a little more uh, foundational. And mathematics, as usual, wins in this sense. Um, and we can start looking at programming. Uh, not really in terms of procedural languages, etc., but in terms of algebras of meaning. Um, and so an algebra in mathematics uh, abstracts a certain set of operations on a certain domain, a certain set of types, um, and with that little language that it constructs uh, can do immensely powerful things. And it's designed to emphasize the similarities in the system that it's describing and to brush away the differences, um, thereby making it uh, of a much larger scope and much more flexible, um, and to contract the number of things that we actually have to describe in detail in order to get the range of behavior. Now, if we look at the history of um, programming languages, do I, oh, don't I? Yes, I do. Anybody in the audience who has not obtained a copy of this book, read it, and really understood it, um, needs to go away and do so, because this book, is the foundation of all serious thinking about the meaning of programs. Um, and it came out, I believe, in 1962. Uh, and the first author is uh, John McCarthy, who you may recognize as the uh, inventor of lots of infernal silly parentheses. Now, what's wonderful about this book is that it not only describes a programming system, but it describes using the programming system how that programming system works. And at the bottom of page 13, you find this wonderful little program written in the system described that has two functions inside it in particular. It has a function eval that says, given a structure in this system, what does it mean to evaluate that structure? Uh, and there are some rules that you can see um, for evaluating uh, simple literals or conditionals. And then if you have a function, uh, a structure representing a function, there is a helper called apply, which is way up at the top, which describes various structures in the system and what their meaning is when applied as a function to the sequence of arguments. Uh, now, this is very powerful because it's a, a simple model. Uh, it has just five primitive concepts inside it, uh, yet it manages to be powerful enough to be a completely general environment that reasons about itself. Now, uh, there is some bold in here that maybe you can or cannot see. Um, the primitive, or what, uh, what McCarthy called the elementary functions, uh, are shown in bold. It's a lot more obvious, I think, in the printed notes. Uh, in short, it's cons, car, atom, eq, uh, cdr, and uh, there's one primitive form. You can't see it in bold right now, but he cheats slightly. In order to evaluate a conditional, he uses a conditional. So for those not familiar with Lisp, everything that I just said uh, is to do with... Um, with structure, with interrogating, 
comparing and constructing uh, forms, data structures that describe the functions. And those functions really are the domain of the system. The data structures are kind of secondary. <clears throat> um, so we have a, a system for describing functions that depends upon some structural details. In this uh, case, in the Lisp case, the structural details are largely irrelevant. Uh, we have a few simple axioms. As long as we understand the axioms, we can then do very powerful things with the theory of functions. However, maybe there's a jewel to this as well. Maybe we can fill in the missing parts, because the missing parts, they ignore me. Um, what does it mean to be a list? What does it mean to be constructed? Cons, what does it mean to be the head of a list, the tail of a list? These are the basic things with which the theory, um, uh, uh, with which the theory reasons, but which are not described within the theory. So the question really that, that poses itself to me is, can we make a similar theory of structure and some Structure, of course, needs some implementation, which is going to be provided by function, but can we make a theory of structure in which the functions are almost as irrelevant as the structure is in the Lisp story of how uh, functions work, or at least reduced to their simple essentials as they are with the five elementary functions uh, in Lisp? So, <clears throat> being from an object-oriented background, naturally my first inclination is let's just encapsulate things as objects. Let's just say, okay, we have an object that's representing something. We don't really care about how it represents it. All we know is we can ask it a question. It gives us back an answer. So a minimal object looks like the top of the slide. It's a blob of something we know nothing about to which we can send a message or ask a question, and it will give us a reply. It might say yes, no, 42. It might say nothing for an hour and then gives back a reply. So no assumptions about the object contents, and we can decouple the implementation of our objects entirely from the representation of those objects, because our interface to those objects is purely by sending messages. We don't know, nor should we care about the internal representation. It's interesting to note, actually, that uh, you can slice this two ways. You can either take an object that you know nothing about, and you can pretend that it has state by invoking functionality as messages, or you can pretend that it has functionality by modeling everything as state. And this is what the self language did. It said that an object is just a bunch of slots. However, some of those slots, when you ask for their value, are evaluated. They are active state. Anyway, we go the first route. It's a little simpler to implement. Um, so we, we can decouple the implementation from the representation. Um, and if we do that in such a way that an object's behavior, that's the little b in a circle, is somehow slightly distinct from the object itself, we can share the behavior amongst many different objects, or we can replace the behavior for an object transparently to anybody who might be using that object. Um, now, this is a very old idea. Um, just as Microsoft didn't invent the internet, uh, some microsystems didn't invent object-oriented programming either. Um, and if we go back uh, to 1960, we find a paper by Douglas Ross, who was at MIT, I believe, where he describes a way of organizing data structures such that some elements in those data structures contain jump instructions. And those jump instructions transfer control to different points in the flow graph um, of the program. And anyone who's done object-oriented programming will immediately recognize this as dynamic dispatch. Now, this is the earliest I know of that this was described in the literature, although if anybody has earlier references, I would love to hear about those. From an object-oriented perspective, objects have nice properties. They can manage complexity. They can hide details of the implementation so that we don't need to worry about them um, until we're ready to. 
Uh, an object with a question mark inside it can even have non-object contents. We know nothing about the contents. Um, plus, they, they behave as namespaces. We can avoid pollution, etc., etc. But one of the things I like in particular about objects is that there is a certain duality that starts popping out of them when you think about them enough. Um, if we go back to the Lisp, uh, Lisp in Lisp definition, there is an, a, a notion of applying a function to some arguments in an environment that gives this function some meaning. If you look at an object, the object-oriented way of doing this is saying, in some receiver object, invoke this function with these arguments, passing the receiver itself as an implicit argument um, to the computation. So in the Lisp world, uh, this association list that they have is an environment in which function names are bound to function meanings. In the object world, it's a receiver object that has a method dictionary that's doing exactly the same thing. So on that level, functions and objects really are extremely similar devices. So if we go back to our minimal idea of an object, a blob of something with some behavior, um, how might we represent this concretely uh, to a computer? Um, well, the way we choose to do it is to place this big blob of something in memory. We have a reference to it so that we can reason with it, pass it around as a parameter. And then before the body of the object, we have a pointer to some other object which is going to give behavior to our minimal object. Uh, and these pointers uh, are often called virtual tables because they are tables of pointers to what are called virtual functions. These functions are virtual in that they uh, may not exist directly for any given object. Um, they are uh, uh, one mechanism of sharing uh, behavior uh, between uh, disjoint but similar types uh, of objects. And so a function may be virtual for a given object in that it's not defined for that object but by something that helps that object by sharing the behavior. Now, our one operation that we're interested in, in these objects, is sending a message to the object. Uh, how do we do that? Using our simple model. Uh, given a message sent to some object with some arguments, we're going to go find the virtual table, which is at offset minus one. Fortran programmers will love this. Offset minus one in the object, and then we ask it to look up the message. So our virtual table object looks up the message we're trying to send, gives us back a method implementation that looks like a function, if we call that function, it's equivalent to uh, invoking the message, sending the message to the object, which will uh, return as a result. Um, so the question is now, how does this operation, this lookup operation, work in our virtual tables? Well, it's a two-stage process. First, we have to find a meaning in that object for the particular message. And this is called a, a binding or a dynamic binding operation. And it involves sending uh, the message lookup to our virtual table. Um, uh, if we expand that slightly, uh, we grab the virtual table, which is at offset minus one. And then typically what is done in object-oriented systems to speed things up, we make a cache. We memoize the results. So these uh, extra two lines are simply saying if we find an answer in the cache, send back the answer we've got. Otherwise, fill up the cache. Um, two more things we can do. Um, we can have uh, special kinds of objects, objects that have, for example, an odd address in memory uh, are sometimes used not to point to data in memory, but to encode the value directly in the pointer, because on many architectures, an odd pointer makes no sense at all. So uh, languages like Smalltalk, or some dialects of Smalltalk at least, will put a one in bit zero, the bottom bit of a pointer, and then the rest of that pointer is actually an encoding of the object, uh, the value of the integer 
itself. Uh, we can do the same with nil if we choose to do so. Um, but what we have uh, in order to bind an object to a message eventually is the send of a message lookup to the virtual table, where lookup in a virtual table is itself defined in terms of bind. So what we have now is a mutual recursion happening. To send the lookup message to a virtual table to find a method to run, we invoke bind, and then bind itself, in order to, to work, has to be able to send lookup to the virtual table inside the thing we are trying to look up in. So there's this circularity going on, but it is not really any more violent than the circularity that is going on uh, in McCarthy's um, uh, description of Lisp inside Lisp. Um, and now, looking at it this way has some nice properties. Uh, our message sending mechanism is entirely described by sending messages to objects. So we are working within the model that we are trying to implement and describe. Um, and by replacing either the bind function um, up at the top or the uh, lookup method inside virtual tables, we can uh, deeply affect the semantics of finding an implementation of a method for a given message sent to an object. <coughs> um, so there, there's also a, a reference to a paper uh, on the website uh, which goes into some detail about the neat tricks you can do. Uh, when you have objects implemented in that manner. Um, but uh, to finish the story for objects, uh, if we were going to flesh them out with the minimum uh, set of methods that we need, messages understood by those objects to turn them into something useful, it turns out that just four or five messages is all we need. And the same way that we can implement our five elementary functions in Lisp, we could write these five messages in whatever programming language we choose and end up with a completely working object system. Um, and again, there is a reference on the, the website uh, and in one of the papers where you can download uh, an example implementation. So the messages that we need, we have already seen look up on the previous slides. Um, we need to be able to construct a method table. We need to be able to add behavior to an object. So uh, method output should be familiar to anybody who's done small talk programming. Um, in order to create a unique name for a method, it is uh, or for a message rather, it's useful to be able to intern to create uh, a unique symbol from a string. Um, and then this wouldn't be much use if we couldn't allocate objects, then uh, all the allocate function does is create some space for a particular size of payload and puts the receiver, which is some virtual table at offset minus one inside that space. Uh, and I encourage you, uh, if, uh, if the simplicity of this looks appealing, I encourage you to download the, the code and play with it for yourselves. Um, so what pops out of this is a structure that looks um, uh, a little bit incestuous. Um, in order to understand behavior inside an object, send messages to it, we have another object, which is its virtual table, which implements our lookup function to give back an implementation for a given message. Um, but being able to send lookup to a virtual table implies that this guy also understands lookup. And so we have a virtual table that describes how virtual tables respond to the lookup. And then this point of circularity in the system occurs here. If we wanted to override lookup, we could easily add, for example, a delegation mechanism that simply says, if we fail to find something in a dictionary, let's go ask some other virtual table. <clears throat> so what do we have so far? Um, we have a theory of functions that dates back to 1962. Uh, we have a theory of uh, objects with virtual dispatch, which dates back to maybe 1960. 
Um, but concretely, we have two things. We have some, some does and some is. We have objects that represent things, they are the is, and we have functions that cause things to happen, the behavior, they are the do. Um, if we look at a, a typical virtual machine-based language, um, we might have an image or some class files uh, full of objects, and uh, these represent computations. The virtual machine is a magic wand we can wave at them, and it causes some activity to happen, some state changes, messages to be exchanged between the contents of the image or these class files. So our representation of does, which itself is an object in many languages, Smalltalk has compiled methods, for example, our representation is indirectly moving things around um, between the is, the objects, uh, by virtue of having a virtual machine. And the whole system actually would be useless if we didn't have the virtual machine. And the virtual machine itself usually is not described within these systems. Uh, there are uh, variants uh, like Squeak, for example, that can create their own virtual machine um, and they can run it as a simulation, but really the virtual machine is outside the domain of the objects and the messaging that is happening. Um, so, uh, and the same is true of Lisp. Uh, inside Lisp we have a structure that implies how functions might happen, um, but there is a little bit of magic. The elementary functions and the sequencing of, uh, at the very lowest level, the sequencing of actions that cause those functions to actually churn over and cause something to happen uh, is left unspecified. So, maybe what we have here is a situation where the things that are missing in our objects can be described by the functions, and the things that are missing in our functions can be described by the objects. Let's see how that might work. And we could choose either side to start from. Uh, today I'll start from objects. So if we look at an object as a piece of structure that represents something, it is a thing, O, which we can send a message to M, that then gives us back an implementation on the right, I, where the implementation is just a sequence of further messages being sent to further objects. Now what's missing in this uh, is a story about what the, uh, the cross means between the O and the M. What does it mean to find the method inside the object? And then what does it mean in the I, the implementation, what does it mean to then cause a sequence of messages to be sent to objects further on? Well, one way we could uh, uh, start to fill this, uh, uh, fill this question in is to look at the objects as being the S expressions as described by McCarthy. Uh, and then we can say that an object is a structure that describes how to create in the computer's memory uh, some executable form of behavior. And we could even use objects uh, and functions to describe how all of those transformations occur. Um, and then if we feed those back in to the top, we have objects sending messages uh, to other objects uh, via implementations, all described by functions that are created by the structures of objects and the messages exchanged between them. So we now have a circle. We have the parts that the functions failed to describe filled in by the objects and the parts that the objects failed to describe filled in by the functions. And if we uh, generalize these transformations, uh, we can take S expressions, we can make any kind of intermediate representation that we like, um, and we can feed that to uh, a code generator, for example, to build something that can be directly executed by the machine at the end. Um, so uh, another analogy that we're uh, quite fond of uh, comes from physical sciences. Um, 
where we have particles, which are the static description of the universe, and then fields that surround the particles and cause them to have effects on each other. Um, and so the story of objects as form and, and functions as the behavior given by the form uh, is a little bit like uh, a particle and a field. Uh, the particles themselves are uninteresting unless they do something, and the fields really mean nothing unless they can act upon something. So uh, keeping these two things in balance um, seems to create theories of computing that are uh, very much more powerful than either one in isolation. Um, now, Niklaus Wirt, if I pronounce that correctly, uh, Niklaus Wirt uh, once wrote a book, uh, by, name by, by name or by value, depending which side of the Atlantic you're on, that's right. Um, uh, once wrote on the cover of a book that, uh, let's see if I get this right, uh, data structures plus algorithms equals programs. Well, he was almost correct. <laughs> he was almost correct. If we take typical elements in the form of objects and dynamic relationships in the form of functions that act on those objects and between those objects, um, that is the stuff really of complex systems. And if we look at all this as, um, uh, uh, as a mathematical uh, unification of uh, the substance of a computing system, um, many phenomena that were previously seen as special cases suddenly just turn into um, particular arrangements of these very general ideas. So in a complete computing system, uh, the way this would work, uh, we've seen how objects can describe functions that give behavior to things, including the objects. Um, well, we can extend that in several directions. Um, we could go uh, leftwards here is towards the programmer. Um, we can use similar mechanisms to provide everything the programmer interacts with, uh, things that parse text into syntactic structures and then operate on those to generate programs. Um, uh, because uh, there is nothing fixed or esoteric happening, we can use our objects and messages to go uh, orthogonally, and we can describe small sections of uh, small sections of our program, for example, where we will deviate slightly. We will describe a new concept to our system, and the system will understand that for a particular scope within our program. Um, so we have domain-specific languages, application, and what I call mood-specific languages. For the next three lines, it is my inclination that this punctuation character means this. I can describe that to my system, and it will obey me. Um, in the other direction, we can go find boring languages like C um, and eat uh, header files directly from our, uh, supplied with our operating system in order to interface with the libraries and the facilities supplied for us. So what I'd like to do in, uh, in the last portion of the talk is to look a little bit how we might tackle going in this direction. And I'll also fill out maybe a little bit um, of our ideas on code generation. But what's interesting, how are we going to do the lexical syntactic analysis? And then how are we going to do, once we have our structures describing behavior, how are we going to generate something real in the machine off of those? So recently, um, if, you, if you get onto Google or the Wikipedia and you type in uh, parsing expression grammars or packrat parsers, you will find a resurgence of interest in work that was started in 1970 um, on uh, recursive descent parsing uh, with backtracking, which can understand um, uh, a much uh, broader range of grammars than many of the tools that are used to construct programming languages uh, these days. Um, another great influence on what we're doing uh, is the, the, the synergy that comes from 
that is found in the tech system by Donald Knuth. Now, tech is a wonderful way of creating academic papers and entire books, but if you dig a little bit below, beneath the surface, you will find a fascinating approach to programming system design, because the thing is a functionally complete programming system. Um, and Don Knuth's genius built a system in which the input can actually reason about its own meaning immediately in real time. So the way the input is treated can be affected by the input that has already been seen in a very direct and very first-class manner. So anyone that's interested in, um, in how lexical analyzers can be built out of lexical analyzers, uh, go and read uh, the, the tech book. It's a very fascinating piece of literature. Um, but what I will talk about in slightly more detail is the grandfather of all dynamic grammar, um, and this goes to work that was done, I believe, at UCLA in 1962 by uh, Val Shaw, who implemented a system, described a system and implemented it, and built um, uh, Algol uh, compilers from it, uh, and his system was called Meta2. And it had a, a very interesting property that it was grammar that could bootstrap itself. Now, what you're looking at is a little bit, uh, a little bit arcane. Uh, I apologize about the capital letters, but in 1962, programmers actually spoke in capital letters. So this was perfectly natural to them. Um, what we can see, uh, if you've looked at any uh, uh, grammars, formal grammars, uh, you will start to recognize things immediately. Um, we have uh, names along the left, which are uh, fixed points in the grammar. They're called non-terminal symbols. And uh, they can be some pattern that we see on the input. If we see this pattern, we say we have satisfied this particular symbol and it succeeds in any enclosing uh, rules that we are trying to satisfy. Um, and we feed an entire program to a set of rules like this and the recognizer says yes or no. If it says yes, we have a legal program. If it says no, we don't. And usually as a side effect, we build some structures that can be used to, for example, generate code off of our program. Now, what Val Shaw did, he built a very simple grammar, uh, and this is it, I copied it as best as I could from the paper, um, in which what the grammar is capable of doing in its simplest form is specifying um, a program written in a, a small stack machine that is capable of recognizing grammars. And he connected the output back to the input, created the simplest grammar capable of recognizing itself. Um, so we see, for example, uh, for our expression three, we have a set of alternatives. There was no vertical bar in those days, so the slash was used to represent alternatives, um, uh, which can be either this or this or this or this or this or this, otherwise fail. Uh, and if we look in the grammar itself, we see here something that looks suspicious. It's saying that we can have one of these followed by an optional slash, maybe some output. The things in the outs are the instructions that it will generate on the... Uh, for the stack machine, followed by another one of these. So maybe this rule is saying how we can have multiple different possibilities within one of our grammar rules. And it turns out that's exactly what that rule is saying. Um, this rule here is saying the dollar sign means repetition. It's just a, a shorthand way of avoiding recursion in the grammar. And it's saying that if we see one of these followed by a dollar sign, then we can have as many of these little guys as we like. And here is the rule that generates, that recognizes in the grammar one of these things and implements it in terms of these instructions that we see on the right. So what's interesting here is that it's, again, it's the McCarthy approach to describing how functional programs work, but applied to how grammars work, how programs, how computers can be taught to recognize 
certain sentences and create meaning from them. Uh, and we've, uh, we've implemented something very similar to this and used it to bootstrap um, uh, uh, implementations of JavaScript, Python, and similar languages. Now, um, in parallel with that work, um, uh, Larry Tesla and his team uh, were uh, investigating pattern matching uh, in the context of Lisp 70. Um, and one of the systems that they built, uh, the pattern matcher, Lisp 70 pattern matcher, could recognize tokens, uh, uh, sequences of tokens, and from those sequences, arbitrary unstructured sequences create structured expressions, structured S expressions uh, in the dialect of Lisp underneath. Um, so the first half of the slide shows how um, uh, an algol-like uh, language or a basic-like language could be constructed to translate if statements into uh, lispy conditional statements. Um, and so if we feed it uh, uh, this, out pops this. Uh, anyone that's done basic will recognize this. Anyone that's done lisp will recognize this as being equivalent things. Now, this is less interesting than Val Shaw's work for parsing uh, text and certainly for bootstrapping self-describing grammars, but it's very much more interesting when we think about transformations that are going to take structures that could be in arbitrary form and create canonical structures that can then be compiled to something meaningful for the machine. Uh, and this idea uh, came back in 1977, where I think it's Richard Kelsey uh, described a thing he called pre-scheme, which was a kind of scheme that was taken down to the types understood by the machine uh, and used as a substrate for implementing the scheme dialect of uh, Lisp. Anyway, back to Lisp 70. Um, after those initial rules that recognized tokens and created structure, they had further rules. Um, and one of those rules was how to compile those structures into something that anyone who's seen a Burroughs 5000 machine will recognize that this is a little bit like the stack language of the Burroughs 5000. Um, so it's saying that a condition is a series of compilation of the, the predicates followed by um, conditional jumps to uh, a label uh, that gets you out of that conditional block. And a less is compile each of its arguments, then fetch the less function, which will leave true or false on your stack. And they used this to build uh, a translator that went all the way down to the venerable PDP-10. Beautiful architecture. Unfortunately, no longer manufactured, so we have to look for something different. Now, uh, what I would say about this is that uh, the stack machine model that they have of output uh, is a little bit limited uh, for what we would want to do these days. Uh, it doesn't deal with types, it just assumes everything is a Lisp data type, so we couldn't use it to interface with our machine. Um, it's, uh, it's very simple in its model, um, but that simplicity, the price we pay, is that everything is stack structured, uh, including control flow. It's hard to generate uh, uh, flows that come out of, uh, of a block, uh, uh, a lexical block even within the program, um, and it's difficult to reason with it about um, data values that might not have neat block structured scope. It's also a little hard to optimize. Um, so, how can we get around these problems? And there was uh, some very nice work done by Fraser and Hansen, um, who are now at Microsoft, which is uh, appropriate for this room, um, where they described a retargetable compiler um, whose intermediate language uh, was a lot more general than the, the stack languages that we used in Lisp 70. 
And this isn't exactly the language that they used, but it is very similar to it. And you can see that it's looking much more like the uh, operations that you would expect to see in a stack machine designed for executing C programs. Um, and uh, students of arcane history may remember a project in the 80s called ANDEF, which was a termination of several experiments in creating distribution formats that were uh, independent of architecture, um, that were completely declarative and had nice mathematical properties, but they looked a little bit similar um, to this stuff up here. Um, now, what's interesting about uh, expressing the program this way, rather than as a, a linear sequence of instructions for a stack machine, is that we can do uh, what we've been doing all along, which is apply some uh, tree, reasoning about trees, uh, over this structure. One of the things we can do is describe what looks like a grammar, but in fact is picking out pieces of structure within these uh, uh, intermediate representation trees um, and describing how to generate concrete instructions when we see a particular piece of structure inside the, uh, inside the program. Now, whereas the LCC work uh, used um, uh, what's called a register transfer language, it linearized these instructions um, and then referred to certain outputs flowing into certain inputs. Um, and this reduced the effectiveness of uh, uh, register allocation, for example. Um, whether you can do register allocation over what's called a basic block, which is something where control doesn't flow into or out of, except at the, the start and the end, or whether you can do global register allocation, which means look at the values within an entire function and allocate the registers um, efficiently or not, um, is, uh, is deeply influenced by whether you use uh, a register transfer language, a linearized sequence of instructions, or whether you use a tree. Now, it's interesting, GCC uses RTL, and I think one of the reasons it's quite slow is because it goes to a lot of work to try to allocate registers in the RTL representation. Anyway, I will say uh, not much more about that other than the system that uh, tries to find uh, coverings of those trees, pieces of structure within the trees, is itself very, very simple. And you can uh, write two functions that do it. Reduce a particular piece of tree to a quantity, a register in the machine, a memory location, a literal in the machine, or a void, just a statement that returns no value. Um, and do that by matching a particular piece of tree against a pattern in the list of rules. Uh, these things are recursive so that uh, uh, structure in the trees can have substructure, etc. And what falls out at the end is a yes or no answer. And it's the inverse of um, the inverse of traditional parsing, if you like, where a normal parser takes unstructured free text and creates a structured representation. What this bottom-up system does is it takes a structured representation and tries to find, inside quotes, an optimal unstructured equivalent, which, uh, in our case, are machine instructions. For the, uh, for the target machine. So, uh, one of the interesting things that we've now done uh, is we've described code generation as a tree rewriting process, and what we've really been doing throughout the whole talk is describing how various phases of the implementation of a programming system can be described in terms of simple tree-like structures and rules, rewriting rules applied to them. Um, and we can hope, in the end, to create a, a single, very small, very easily understandable uh, system, tree rewriting system, in which the whole of the language implementation problem is described. Um, now, if you choose to go away and play with some of the ideas that I'm talking about today, uh, one thing you will discover 
uh, is that uh, you need to find a fixed point to get the recursion, uh, the recursive descriptions started. Um, and the way that we did it uh, was to write a bootstrap compiler in C that could understand a little object language. We then rewrote the object language in the object language, fed it through the bootstrap compiler to create a real compiler, and then deleted the bootstrap compiler because it was now uninteresting. Um, and then everything else, um, the, uh, the transformation rules for taking structures, um, applying all the functional rules to them to create uh, executable things uh, were then fed in. Um, and from that point on, the whole system takes off uh, exponentially because uh, of the, the simplicity, the expressiveness uh, that is built into those two mutually supportive models within it. <clears throat> so our implementation, for various reasons, is a little more complex than it really ought to be right now. Um, the language that, uh, that describes objects um, and the capabilities of objects and the relationships between them, uh, written in itself, is a little over 2,000 lines of code. Um, the transformational rules that can turn structures, uh, S-expression type structures, um, into a canon canonical form for uh, interpretation or code generation, 600 lines. And then a backend that generates machine code. Uh, the independent part is a little less than 500 lines. And we have two machine backends that themselves total uh, about 300 lines of code. You add that all up very quickly, that's 1335. Uh, we have 3,500 lines of code for a complete system that has the generality that I have been describing um, and describes uh, in its own model the model that it is implementing. So, big list of things that we have achieved, I think, in 3,500 lines of code. Uh, Mark, you can ask questions in a few minutes. Um, uh, I'll leave you to read those. So, I'm going to wind up. And then you can ask a question. I'm going to wind up by showing a, a few slides uh, um, that, in a tongue-in-cheek way, describe what we're trying to do, at least with the programming language part, the initial steps in our project to uh, rethink the way that we interact with computers. Uh, in a typical programming language, uh, I call it the walnut model. Now, what happens is that there is really nice, juicy, interesting semantic and implementation stuff inside the kernel. Um, but typically what happens is that there's a shell around it put there by a committee that you will never speak to, you will never get to influence, don't even know who you are. Um, and so there's some interesting stuff on the inside you'd like to get to and exploit, unless there is a hole drilled through the shell for you by some language hacker, you have very little chance. Anyone that's trying to add a feature that was missing to a compiler like GCC will understand the enormity of the task. Now, unfortunately, this little guy with the hammer is just uh, on occasion trying to get something done. He doesn't really care how it's done, except that the only means to do it are hidden away inside. So what are we trying to create instead is a little bit more like a bowl of custard, where everything looks the same, and it's this fluid uh, sameness at whatever uh, level of granularity to a certain limit you look at the system, it all looks the same, and it can be understood uh, all in terms of the same kinds of particles and the same kinds of fields that describe how the particles interact with each other. And then to create end user systems on this, you sprinkle a little sugar on tops, uh, syntactic, semantic, pragmatic sugar, apply a blowtorch, and you have a creme brulee. Tastes very nice. Now, the difference is, with the previous slide, to make a change in a traditional programming language, you need some very, very powerful tools. Compilers, linkers, assemblers, etc., etc., etc. In the systems that uh, we are trying to uh, create here, all you need is a little spoon. Significantly simpler and found in many more kitchens than a Black & Decker drill. 
Um, so to paraphrase, it would seem that less is more. Uh, our experience with these systems are that they are very, very powerful, very, very flexible because of their simplicity and their orthogonality. Um, and in computer science terms, what we've done with many of the features in these systems is to late bind them. What that means is rather than deciding on policy and mechanism ahead of time, um, we've thought a little bit about how we can avoid thinking about policy and mechanism um, and leave those decisions, maybe provide some default decisions, but leave those decisions in the critical parts of the system wide open so that end users can uh, replace them with their own uh, ideas of what they should be. And uh, in the, 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 the four, maybe five bodies of work that I've mentioned along the way, you can see that much of that spirit was around in the 1960s and even earlier. And it's kind of a shame that somewhere along the way, we lost the vision of those early pioneers. So some conclusions, which are really boring. Uh, objects provide all sorts of goodness, which are useful for functions. And functions provide all sorts of goodness, which are useful for objects. And you combine the two, and some magic falls out. <clears throat> what I'd like you to take away from today's presentation is that in a programming system, dynamic really can apply to everything inside your system. Nothing really has to be laid down as law ahead of time. You can leave as much of it as you like open to the people that will use it. And in a dynamic language, the language can also mean all of it, from the characters you type to your system down to the way the system interacts with the surrounding environment. It can be very, very simple. It can be very general. And it will free you from all of the tyrannies of design by committee programming languages that we are forced to use uh, much of the time. But mostly, it's a lot of fun. And if you've never tried to build a language, then take some of the ideas I've talked about today, go back to the original versions of these ideas, download the example implementations that you can find uh, through the URLs on the website, play with it, create with it, and then share it with the rest of us. Because there is some innovation just waiting to be happened and some simplicity that we've lost in computing that is just begging to be found again. So if you decide not to do that, by all means, use ours. We'll be uh, trying to make releases um, fairly often uh, of the system as it evolves um, gradually uh, towards the platform that we really wish it to be for our uh, main goal, which is the qualitative reinvention of how we interact with computers. And I will leave just a few pertinent quotations up there to entertain the people who are not going to ask me horribly difficult questions. Mark. So, so you, got, you got this itty bitty number of lines of code. Where, where, where is the garbage collection? How are you dealing with garbage collection? Ah, excellent question. Well, that's, we, we swept that under the rug uh, for the moment. Now, um, I happen to know that your, uh, your office isn't that far from Hans Boehm. <laughs> Now, you can ask Hans, how hard is it when you have a C program to garbage collect? Okay, and he will tell you at great length how it's really hard. That's right. So, two things. The first thing is that thanks to Hans and his wonderful work, we have a plugin collector that we can just, it's conservative, doesn't move anything, generally only throws stuff away that's garbage. In fact, I haven't yet to see, and this is a testament, we throw some really nasty stuff 
those pointers at offset minus one should break it immediately. I have not seen an error yet due to his garbage collector. So Hans Boehm's garbage collector is fabulous for building prototype systems. Plug it in, forget about your allocation. Okay, it just goes away all by itself. But the second thing is that the, 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 the lessons that he learned are very valuable. Um, and uh, my personal take on this is that garbage collecting C is so hard that even for bootstrapping purposes, use Hands Collector, use the C compiler as a backend to get yourself up and running really fast with your object model, with your little languages. Compiling to C is easier than compiling to assembler. But as soon as you possibly can, throw that C compiler away. Because as soon as you have control over the way your stack frames are laid out, as soon as you know with 100% precision where every pointer is in your program, as soon as you can guarantee that a certain slot in the stack will not at two different points in time have either a pointer in it or a primitive type in it, garbage collection becomes an awful lot easier. So, so, uh, so you threw the C, C compiler away and you also threw Hans's... Uh, uh, we threw the C version of our, uh, not the C compiler, um, while we're using the C compiler as a back end, we still use the Hans Wurm collector. Okay, so, okay. So, and, and so the lines of code for Hans's garbage collector not are not factored into that, but they are, yeah, that's right. They're part of the runtime, they're not part of the language system. They're just part of the runtime support, just a, another library. We could include libc in that as well, we can include the whole kernel in there if you want. But really, it's, it's at that level, it's just a library that we use. Um, and sometime in the near future, Certainly, we will be looking at uh, more closely at the problem of garbage collection. Uh, one thing we don't really want, especially for small devices, is a conservative collector. It has to be a precise collector. And for that, we really need 100% control over what's happening. So just last week, um, my displacement activity for not creating these slides was to uh, build a brand new co-generator, which is capable of, build, of generating static and dynamic code. I can just flip a switch and same program. It either runs in real time or it generates a thing I can then execute offline. Um, and that really is freeing us now from the C compiler. Rather than using the C compiler to build this initial base that we can just launch as an executable, we can use the new code generator. And that will have much more precise control over where things are and how they can be garbage collected. Elliot. So um, as one builds on this um, infrastructure, so one moves into various ecologies for describing different levels of the system. You move from a system which is excellent at describing the, 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 the base execution of the system, and then when you get much higher, you have a, a different system to describe its GUI. We have a system of, of widgets and painters and things, and it's a, it's a different okay. universe of discourse. Yeah. So um, would you claim that a system that is built on this open framework, when you get to those higher levels of the ecology um, is intrinsically better. Uh, and if you would claim that, what, what is the relationship between these different levels of scale and why is it that having the open basis allows one to have a, a better, higher level? Uh, that's, uh, I could take two hours to answer that question. Um, um, uh, I'm not really sure where to attack it, so I'll just pick some random directions to attack it. <laughs> uh, well, no, it doesn't mean really describe it yet, because um, so I, I know for a fact you're familiar with the eToys work uh, that has been done. 
Um, so one of the things that eToys were constantly battling with was the uh, small talk-like assumptions that were underneath them. eToys wanted to be typical element programming. They wanted to be prototype-based. Um, they wanted to be objects to which you could add and remove methods on the fly as easily as changing the value of a, of a data slot inside an object. Um, but the fact that there were classes behind them um, complicated things. Um, so if you have a system where the existence of classes really is just where you choose to put a slider in your language space, um, hopefully will simplify, will eliminate uh, a lot of those problems. Um, another way of looking at that question is, uh, is to think about an end user that comes to a system and sees a particular user interface and wonders about how that user interface works. And wonders about, hmm, well, I don't want the close button top right. I want the close button top left. You know, can I move the close button from one side to another? Um, so a very uh, compelling uh, model of computer interaction is that I have a particular funky red key on my keyboard that I can hold down and click the mouse. And what it does, it will peel back a layer in my user interface and show me the relationships of the things that I'm interacting with. And then I click it again, and it peels back a layer and shows me the implementations of the interactions, etc. to whatever granularity you want to start drilling down in that system. Now, if we can make those layers as similar as possible to each other, so self-similarity is a, is a word I use a lot. I forgot to use it today. Um, uh, it really reduces the learning curve to understanding how the system at an arbitrary level is implemented. And if the system is implemented in such a way that the models that it are using it's using are designed to be lucid, designed to be clear and easy to understand. Again, that shallows the learning curve for anybody trying to get inside it. And if the system really becomes a curriculum, which is one of our goals, then just by reading the descriptions of the interactions between the components inside the system is going to be almost like reading a textbook that describes the ideas and the ideals behind those interactions. But what you're looking at is not just written model of how it works, it's actually a model that executes. And then any optimizations you might apply to that are kind of irrelevant. Providing that the, the, um, the level of description at, at each one of those universes of discourse is, is equally concise and lucid. Right. And that, of course, that is a, is a very, very hard problem but one that by creating a system, you can set yourself up for success. You, know, you can create conditions in which um, your success becomes slightly less unlikely. And one of the ways you can do that, I think, is by creating a programming system in which the, um, in which the assumptions forced upon you by the designer that you have no control over have been minimized. If you late bind as much as you can in the system, then three years down the line, you decide, should have been done a different way. There's nothing really there to stop you. And so that reduces some of the impedance that you're trying to, to shake around between what you envisage in your mind and the way you express it to the machine. So my mood-specific thing, for the next three lines, I want to express things in this weird way. OK, compiler, understand me. I type my three lines of weirdness because I have you know, one line of weirdness just before it, or I have a library of weirdnesses that I can uh, I can call up uh, at will, uh, the compiler for those three lines will understand what I mean. And so one of the things, for example, would be uh, a very trivial example would be if inside a program you could say, okay, in this lexical scope inside my program, I want to define a macro or even better, some, some active piece of stuff that I can plug into the compiler to recognize forms in the tree. Um, 
uh, that mean and then describe the meaning in terms of intermediate code or even real generated code at the bottom. And then that lasts just like any other declaration. It has a little scope. It says inside this little bit of stuff here, my weirdo syntax means this thing to the machine. But I could have answered it in 15 other ways. So. <laughs> Sorry. So haven't you built a system for building towers of Babel where I mean, how could two programmers ever communicate yeah. without learning a brand yeah. new language? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, uh, yes, that, uh, that is a problem. And it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a subtly, but a very subtly different uh, problem um, to, uh, okay, wrong train of thought. But yeah, so it's a, it's a very difficult problem. And the slide that alluded to that was the creme brulee, really. And it's true that if you throw too much generality at, uh, at people, uh, I think Ted wants to say something, if you throw too much generality at people, it can scare them, okay? If there's no obvious firm footing, firm foundations with some rules, nice tidy rules that you can obey, um, it can seem daunting and even off-putting to the point that you wouldn't want to use such a system. So uh, pointing that blowtorch at the, at the sugaring really is saying what we're doing here is creating an artificial um, playing field, an artificial set of rules, uh, and saying, in this given environment, you play by these rules, these things will happen. But if you don't like the rules, this is how you flip the switch to the dangerous position and start digging around underneath them. It just seems that when people are given a lot of freedom, they tend to use it, and every individual uses it slightly differently. Right. And that makes the interaction and the cross-learning having to learn a new language every time I pick up a new book. Right, okay. But then, uh, to draw an analogy, um, if you look at uh, Leslie Lamport's set of macros for, for tech, okay, same problem. You could, you, you could build an infinitely different uh, uh, collection of macros that do essentially the same thing for tech. It just made it real easy. Right. Um, and tech makes it real easy for people to break Leslie Lamport's LaTeX system as well. Um, so it's, it's two things. You, you make the, the rules that you present people as compelling as you can, you know, so they don't really feel the need to get outside of them, except when that little bit of semantic thing they're trying to get to doesn't quite exist. Then they can go and implement it for themselves, or at least learn how they might implement it. Um, and um, uh, secondly, uh, I've forgotten my second point now. You, you make the rules very compelling, um, and... Uh, you describe them. You describe them so yes. that people can understand them. Right, exactly. You describe them so people can understand them. Um, but also, um, the rules that people might want to reformulate themselves, um, being one level down, hopefully would be understandable to anybody else who has looked one level down. Did you have a comment, Ted? I was just going to say that, yes, the Tower of Babel, but with each language comes its own manual describing how, what it means. Right. As I said, I, yeah. I have to learn a new language every time I pick so up a new book. That's the concern. We'll see. Not necessarily, because the, 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 the language, um, if you like, the particles and fields you're dealing with are always the same. Well, it's the I've, relationships. As Elliot said, it's the relationships. I've are. run into this with ontology systems. Mm -hmm. and what we learned is you have to get the incentives right so that people only extend when they need to extend, right. not just because they prefer to express it in a different way. Right. Um, okay, we have six minutes left of uh, questions, by the way. Uh, I'll go this side and then that side. We've been down this road a few times in the past, uh -huh. not with great success. I mean, the, the classic minimal system was uh, 
moors uh, forth, 9,000 right. gates, and we've got a stack machine mm -hmm. and a very minimal implementation uh, all the way down to a three-button keyboard with chords. Mm. Um, so, but the, that represents, I think, the, 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 the most minimal thing we've seen. And that didn't really go anywhere. No. And then we have the whole symbolic list machine debacle. Fourth was a Latin language. You know, layer after layer, and you could go all the way down, and you could get in there and list, and you could get in there and the debugger, and you could hack. And boy, did the AI community burn a lot of uh, of, of useless effort dealing with that monstrosity. Um, and you know, the original small talk on the uh, on the Alto was kind of like that. I mean, you could go pretty far down if you get the BCPL level. Um, and you know, we've actually explored this sort of minimal thing that has the same semantics all the way down with no big barriers a couple times. Uh, I think Worth went down that road. The, the thing he did after Modula 3, what was that? Oberon? Oberon, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all the way down to the, to the bare iron in, in Oberon in, in one system. And all of these have, none of these have ever gotten any significant market share or utility or anything. Um, why is this different? That's an excellent question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, if I knew, I would probably be running the next company like Symbolics, if I thought I knew an answer. I don't really know why this should be any different, um, other than, uh, for us, it's a vehicle, really. Uh, we don't see any system out there that, uh, currently, that is existing, that has these uh, features that we need. So really, in, in many senses, we're building it to have ourselves as a thing for our further experiments um, but we would hope that the flexibility um, uh, that is uh, built into the system would be compelling for other people to adopt as well which is why we have done some work on uh, some investigations of running JavaScript uh, inside it um, toy implementations of Python as well inside of it um, and uh, at some point I'm going to go for a real programming language uh, really quotes there, uh, maybe C99, which would be useful for sucking in header files. But um, not uh, maybe not having a narrow-minded vision saying that this is our programming language, this is our system, everything's built in this language all the way down to the metal, but saying here's a system in which you can build any number of programming languages you want with any uh, uh, semantic sets that you want, any uh, group of behaviors that you want inside there, and to make it to reduce the impedance between what you want and how you eventually achieve that at every possible level. Now, maybe uh, maybe Symbolics tried to do that. I, I never had the privilege of using a Symbolics machine, so, so I don't know. Um, but uh, we don't have one particular goal in mind. Our real goal is to generalize things so that anybody's goal can be accommodated with the least friction possible. I don't know if that answers your question in any way, shape, or form. How do you see the um, problem of integration? You know that people come up with you know all these different kind of languages. You know, like people come up with expressing data structure on a high level, and now you have the problem of like like integrating um, you know these two like data structure languages. And do you always go down to the to your semantic level, or do you have some kind of a notion of you know like higher level where they meet somewhere at the, at the highest possible level? Or what, what do you have? Well, at, at a very low level, um, 
the, the, there is the, the, the simplest model of objects inside here, and there is the simplest model of functions inside here, and everything builds out from those. So uh, in your scenario, you have two people with differing goals that want to cooperate with each other. The question is, they, they get to choose how far down uh, the rabbit hole they want to dig before they decide to tunnel across and meet each other. Um, but that won't solve the big problems involved in, in what you're saying. So there, there is an underlying uh, bunch of building blocks they can use to try and create uh, some object structures, some behavioral structures in common. And if they both build on the same substrate, then in, you know, uh, intuitively their interaction with each other will be simpler. But that won't solve the big problem. And the big problems are really the, the, the semantic payload that comes with the data, what that data actually means. So if I was to take a Java object, give it to a Smalltalk virtual machine, worse, take a Smalltalk object, give it to a Java virtual machine, and ask it to start manipulating that object, then give it back to Smalltalk, okay? I wouldn't trust my virtual machine anymore because I know that Java implementation can manipulate that object in ways that my virtual machine is not understanding. And it's the same with, with many pairs of language. If you take Objective Camel and, and Lisp, and you try and share objects between the two, there are going to be rules that are sacrosanct in one universe, broken by the other. So there will always be that kind of impedance that you have to overcome. Maybe there's another set of languages that describe the interaction between the other languages. So we have like a <laughs> different level of language, like interaction languages between your languages, and then, you know, yeah, you And hopefully it's all part of the same language, because one of the things I didn't mention explicitly that one of the goals I hope maybe you got from this is that meta doesn't really exist. The meta level is no longer important because the level is all there is. There is just the level in which everything happens. Everything you thought of as being meta is just part of your end user universe now. Just all zeros and ones. Just zeros and ones, Alan. Social experiments. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for your... Okay, one more. 30 seconds. Anecdotal evidence. And I understand that Knuth's choice of a programming language for tech was determined by what programming language the best debugger. <laughs> it really didn't have much to do with what you can express in the programming language, but it's easiest to debug. Yeah. Right, to understand the failures of your program. Okay. Um, so my response to that is, um, that uh, you can take the idea of printf debugging and extend it as deeply as you like into a system. Yeah. <clears throat> now, what's interesting is that in, in, in my system, I can write a tiny little piece of code, and it describes to, to my compiler, this is how I instrument uh, entry and exit from functions. Okay? Uh, I point it to a little source file. It runs it. Immediately, I have, you know, I have activation counts for my procedures. I could have edges in a control flow for all my procedures, etc. So really, it's brought the, the meta level is down in the level. And if I want to write debugging utilities for myself that are not supplied for me, hopefully now it is possible to do so. So the entire debugger is written in the language, or at least an extension of the language that you are trying to debug. Is that, thank you very much. And no, thank you. thank you. For information on other Stanford seminars and courses, please visit study.stanford.edu. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.